Look with me in Matthew 8, verse 5. We're going to look at verses 5 through 10. Uh, It says, Now when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home, paralyzed. He's dreadfully tormented. He's in a very bad place. I need your help desperately. The idea here is that this centurion, is. we immediately notice one thing about him. He deeply cared about his servant. He was more than just somebody who worked for him or he he simply had hired or whatever, had bought. He was someone who he deeply cared about. The centurion in this case was no doubt a believer. He was a believer in the God of Israel and had come to some apprehension of faith in Jesus as well. But the fact is that a centurion was often referred to in the scriptures. They were commonplace at this time because a centurion was a Roman soldier, but not just any kind of a soldier. Uh, A regiment of of Rome, when it was at full strength, consisted of about 6,000 soldiers. Out of those 6,000, there were 60 uh, centuries. Uh, They were 60 divisions, in a sense, of, of 100, over which a centurion oversaw those men. And so a centurion was, if you read certain military historians and such, they will tell you that the Romans considered the centurions the backbone of their army, that uh, they were some of the most important people in the army because they oversaw at a tangible level, at a ground level, the soldiers. At the same time, they were remarkable in their own right, noted for their skills. But uh, they, were, they were able to oversee things as well. So you have this unique man. Um, in fact, whenever the, interesting enough, and this is a total side note, but whenever centurions are referred to in the scripture, there's usually complementary things around it. In this particular case, we're going to see that he really had an understanding of, of something about how God works that impressed Jesus. So let's, let's look together. It says that he said, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, well, I'll tell you what, I will come and I will heal. I will come to your house and I will heal him. And then the centurion answered, and he said, Lord. And, and now he is going to refer to the fact that typically Jews did not go into the house of the Gentile. It was the custom of the day. But he takes it even further, because Jesus was going to go, wasn't he? He was going to cross those lines. But the centurion said, listen, Lord, you know what? He said, I'm not worthy that you should even come to my house. Stand under my roof. This is what I would like you to do. I only ask that you would speak the word. And I know that if you will speak the word, my servant will be healed. For I, and then he goes on to say this, because you know what? I understand how authority works. I also am a man under authority. I am a man who has soldiers under me. I say to this one, go, and he goes. I say to another one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. He says, I understand how authority works, because the centurion was both one under authority and one who exercised authority. He was one submitted and one also in authority. And he says, as, I understand how it works. So you don't even need to come to my house. You have authority. Of this I believe. Say the word. It will be done. To which Jesus, in one of the most uh, honest expressions that we see in the scripture of just absolute uh, impressed sort of explanation, says, uh, it's, it's like Jesus turns to the rest of the disciples, the people that was around him. He says, truly I... Truly, assuredly, I say this to you. Look at the way he says it. Assuredly, I say to you that I have not seen faith greater than this. No, not even in all of Israel. Did you hear? See, it was Jesus. It says that Jesus marveled. Notice it says Jesus heard it and he marveled at it. That's a key point. Verse 10. He marveled. Basically, Jesus was absolutely astonished and amazed. It caught him off guard and impressed him greatly. And he says, he says, I tell you this right now. I haven't seen faith like this. He under, this man understood something 
that others couldn't appreciate. And it's interesting because Jesus says, you know what? (laughs) Someone who really understands, who's not even a part of who we are, outside the circle of the nation, and yet this kind of faith, and he marveled at it. In fact, whenever the Bible says that Jesus marvels at something, and it doesn't happen that often, it's worth noting. And he marveled at this man's faith. It says he marveled. It says it, 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 it deeply affected him. It, it's something that caught him, and he marveled. So whenever we hear this idea of marveling at faith, believing, Jesus was very impressed. He was very moved. He, he felt very compelled by this man's confession. And you know what the, the scripture goes on to tell us? That he went on to heal the servant. And, um, and yet, it's worth noting a second time that Jesus marveled. And really, I wanted to refer to the first one as a contrast to the second one, which is going to dominate the bulk of whatever time we have left. And it's under the passage right below the one that we just referred to in Matthew 8. This one is in Mark 6, verse number 1. It says, then he went out from there, and this is a whole different scenario, okay? It says, then he went out from there and came to his own country, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. Now, it says that when Jesus went out to his own country, what is he referring to? That's referring to his hometown. I'll just put up a map real quick for us. That specifically is referring to Nazareth. You can go to Nazareth today. A couple of years ago, we had a chance to go to Israel, and we were able to walk into Nazareth. It's the place where Jesus grew up. You can notice it in relation to Jerusalem and to the Mediterranean Sea. If you go up from Judea, which is where Jerusalem was in Jesus' day, up to the Galilee, which you can still go to today, the Sea of Galilee, Nazareth is immediately to the west. You can see it there. Jesus grew up there in the hill country of the, of Naz, of, in, the, in a town called Nazareth in the Galilee. Now, the reason that's significant is that Jesus is now at a point in his life where he has his disciples with him. He's coming back to his hometown. News about Jesus has spread. He's been doing amazing things, teaching amazing things. People are talking about him possibly even being Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, the promised one. There's a lot of interest in Jesus. He returns back. In fact, Jesus at this time was being received with great enthusiasm by multitudes of people, but Jesus returns back to his hometown. And look at what happens. Look at what happens. It says that he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath, which would have been on the Saturday. He goes to church. And as would have been custom, they offered him an opportunity as a teacher to teach in the synagogue. And it says, and many hearing him were astonished. They were struck, saying, where did this man get these things? How did he learn this? Where did he get these words? How did he get this power? Where did it come from? Who taught him these healing arts? What is this? What's going on here? And then it says, that they were not only struck by what, the, what Jesus was saying, but, by, and by the way, this is not the language of faith. That was the langu- this was the language of disbelief because they were f- incredulous. They were filled with skepticism and doubt. There had to be an explanation other than the one that they were being given, which was that he was the anointed of God because they, like many today, began with the presupposition that whatever else was true, Jesus couldn't, have be, couldn't be that. And they said in verse 3, notice, is not this the carpenter? Now, the word for carpenter there is, is, is a root word, tectone, which is we're very much connected to our words technique, technician, you know, technical, this idea of a repairman, this idea of a worker with wood, an artisan, a craftsman. Didn't he grow up over here? Didn't he, didn't he grow up in this town? Didn't he fix things for us? Plows and, and you know, tables and and he, what do you tell He He's the son of Mary. And by the way, typically a person would be referred to, and there's a lot of thought here. One is that some people say, well, by this point, Joseph was dead. But typically, even if, you're, even if 
the father was dead in, in, in the case that he would have been Jesus' adopted father, that you would have still referred to him typically as someone who was connected to Joseph, right? But they don't say son of Joseph. They say son of Mary, which, is their, which many have pointed out would have been an attestation to his dubious background and questionable parenting, that he would have come from a certain uh, controversy. In other words, who is this carpenter, this son of Mary? We don't even know who his father was. It was a scandalous, basically, assertion. It was not meant to bless. It was meant to call into question his birth. And it says, we know, we, he grew up here. He's a son of Mary, the brother of James, Judas, and Simon. And, not, and aren't his sisters still here with us? And so they were, look at the phrase at the end of the verse. So they were what? Offended at him. They stumbled over him. They refused to acknowledge him. They were disappointed and they disregarded him. They pushed him away. They said, whatever else you are, you are not that. We know you. We don't know who your father was, but we know you. You were here. You grew up here. We know your family. We know where you lived. It is implausible for us to believe that someone who grew up in this town is now to be viewed as not just a teacher, but as a prophet and the promised one. No way. We do not believe it. We do not receive it. We do not welcome you. We do not acknowledge you. We reject you. Notice what it says here. It says, and Jesus said to them, well, I tell you this, a prophet is not without honor, save in his own country. In other words, in other words, a prophet is usually not welcomed in his own house, in his own place, right? I mean, he's usually not going to find uh, a welcomed mat out in his own, amongst his own, that he would have outside away from them. And it says that they were offended. They were offended. Why were they offended? Because they stumbled over the contradictions, didn't they? I mean, they, they listen, there's a lesson for us. They couldn't get past the, the chasm of faith too wide to leap across. They couldn't get past who they understood him to be. Again, his family, his occupation, his lack of training and pedigree, his background, the simplicity of Christ, the, the oddity of what God could conceivably be doing was ruined for them. It was marred by the fact that they had grown up around him. And it just it didn't compute for them, and so they rejected it. They weren't even given an option. And I thought in my own self that the Christian life, you know, I've, I've talked, I talk with different people. I read different things, talk about Christian, the Christian life. And one of the things that's amazing to me is a lot of conversations I have, not, not maybe most, but periodically I will talk to people about the Lord. I've talked about Jesus. And one of the things that is, is I've been struck by is that how sometimes people uniformly dis regard Jesus as a real option because he's not exotic enough. It, the Christian life is just not esoteric enough for us. You know, uh, it's, it, it's, it's got to somehow be more mysterious, more challenging to grasp. Come on, Jesus of Nazareth, a carpenter's son, the divine path, are you serious? No, it's got, it's got to have something more to it. It's got to, you know, send us to the mountains of Nepal, confuse us, mesmerize us, give us numbers, symbols, questions, equations, spaceships, you know, time travel, unknowable concepts. Come on, are you serious? Not a manger, not a, not a humble savior, not a cross, not an empty tomb. I've heard that too many times. It's, it's, it, 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 that's for fools and naive, simple-minded, non-thinkers. I was, that's one perspective. The other perspective, I was reading an article last weekend from the, from the Wall Street Journal, and they were, it was about, they actually had two guests 
uh, essayist talking about God. And in that, they had two people, one of whom was an atheist and a very well-known atheist. He was making the case that, and then the other one was supposedly representing uh, a different perspective. And I was caught, because I read them both, and I was caught by the end of the one reading. And I was struck by how cold it left me. It was like the chill of death on it. There was nothing of life in it. It was hopeless and sad. And in the name of being brutally honest, I thought it completely cut off everything about life that you cannot explain. Because how do you explain love? And how do we explain our own capacity to create things and desire to create things? Why do we like to create? Why do we like to compose something, draw something, um, build something, put our name on it, construct something? Where did that come from? Everything we see that's beautiful around us that was, that at some level that human beings uh, participated in was, was, we understand it. Certain things don't happen. Mechanisms don't happen. Instruments don't just happen. They're all things, technology, it doesn't just happen. Somebody put it into place. Where did it come from? I thought about the ability to love. Where did that come from? from? What about this yearning in our heart to live? It's not, you, see, it's one thing to, I, I believe in science, but I believe in warm science, not cold science. It's like what C.S. Lewis said. C.S. Lewis said, you know, a life without Christ is like winter all the time and no Christmas. It's dead, cold, and frigid, and hopeless. It's got no spring in it. It has no life, no promise, no possibility. But the Bible says, no, 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 Jesus said it. Don't you ever think that you're just here. He says, he says you have been made in the image of God. That the imprint of the divine sits on us even in our broken place. And there's a yearning to live. Where did that come from? A yearning for more. We sing about heaven. Where is that yearning, that desire, that belief? Where is it, that aspiration? See, Jesus talked about it as reality. Interestingly enough, in Hebrews 11, we're told this, and, and we're, not, we're not quite there yet. Let me just point out something else first. It says this in verse four. Look what happens. It says, but Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except, except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. That is, a prophet is, is rarely appreciated by his own home. And it says in verse 5, now he could do, think about this verse for a moment. Look, up, look at this verse for a moment. It says that he could do, no. whenever it says Jesus can't do something, it's worth taking a look at. And look what it says. He could do no mighty work there. He could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled. Now we see Jesus marveling again. But you know what he marveled at? He, he marveled at their unbelief. He was caught by the degree of unfaith that came out of them. He marveled. He was astonished. He was amazed. Think about it. What a contrast. The centurion Jesus marvels at his faith. You say the word. You don't even need to come. You say the word. It will be done. And then he comes here to his own hometown. He comes here to his own people. And when he says what he says and teaches what he teaches, what is he told? You are nothing. We don't even know who your father was. We do not receive you. And Jesus marveled, but not at their faith. He marveled at their resistance, at their complete lack of openness, at their unwillingness to even be open to the possibility that God was doing amazing things in their midst. He, he was marveling at the tenacity of their unbelief. The decision 
to disbelieve, listen to that, the decision to disbelieve made Jesus marvel. And so I was thinking about this. Let me put some things on the board. The first one has to do with faith. And I want us to be aware of this. At, at its core, faith, and this connects to where we've been, faith is a decision. It is a choice. It is a stance. It is an attitude. It is a chosen response. It is something we must decide to do. One of the things that's pretty clear to me is that the Bible does talk about this frequently. And in Hebrews 11, 6, I'll just put a great, a great verse up there. It says that, that it is, without faith, it is impossible. To, it, is impo- it is impossible to please God. If we want to know God, we must first believe that he is, that he exists, and two, that he can be known, that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek after him, that he can be found. Jesus says, you will find God in my face, in me. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Follow me. That is the invitation. Now, a lot of times I've talked to people, say, well, I just wish I had more faith. You know, I say, you know what's amazing? Jesus never said that, I, I don't think I have great faith. But Jesus said, oh, he picked up, a, one time people were talking about, I said, Jesus picked up a seed one time, and he said, you know what? You see this seed, and mustard seed was typically one of the smallest seeds around. And he says, you know what? You know how much faith you need to see God's reality? He said, this much. Faith of a mustard seed. I tell you that in this embryonic form contains the potential power to move a mountain. What he was saying was, once it opens up, it opens you know, the Bible says in John 1, 12, it says, but as many as received him, to them gave he the power to be called the sons of God. Look at the last phrase, even to those who believe in his name. You know, sometimes if we don't have faith, um, two things around that, we should ask God to give us faith. Lord, help me to believe you because I know things open up when I believe you. But there were people that came up to Jesus and they, they you know, it's like they walked up to him, they wanted him to do something, but they came up and they said, Lord, and the first thing that comes out of their mouth is, Lord, help thou my unbelief. It's like, I, and, and it's like, you don't hear Jesus go, how can you say that? Where is your faith? You know what he says? I, you never see Jesus beat up someone verbally for being honest about where they're at. He actually moves he, he blesses people. Well, there's an, there is a degree of honesty that will not repel God, but it bring, actually draws, it draws us to him. And it's amazing sometimes to consider the fact that the Lord deeply wants us to come to him as we truly are and be honest about our struggles, to be honest. Look, it is not about pretending. It's about being real so that God can begin to work in things in our lives. And it's like at its core, faith is a decision. The, the, the citizens of Nazareth had made a decision to close themselves off from Jesus. And when they put him in the box, all right, they lost the blessing of what he was meant to be to them. And I'm going to take this and flip it and shoot it over into our own lives. And I'm going to suggest, secondly, this is our second idea, that one of the things we need to be careful of is, is familiarity. That we need to be careful about that tendency in our part. And I'm talking about the familiarity that diminishes. One of the things that clearly stands out in this passage here is that sometimes um, that old saying, that colloquialism, as we often refer to it, that familiar, familiar, familiarity breeds contempt. 
that one of the unfortunate side effects of drawing close and coming alongside is that it can expose flaws. And when flaws are exposed, that can produce, unless we check this tendency, a kind of critical spirit that will destroy what was meant to be. And so one of the things, that, and by the way, this plays, this plays in every place that we have relationship. The Nazarenes rejected Jesus because he had grown up around them. And as a result, they were unable to appreciate the beauty of his being and that which he wanted to bring to them. And it was kind of a pride that blinded them from being able to see who he was meant to be, who he was. And that pride showed up in, its, in the critical spirit. And uh, one thing about it, stay with me on this, that f- familiarity, that de- familiarity is, a, is, familiarity is an c- interesting dynamic because it can either, once we, once we are allowed close to someone, that either bonds us together in a higher degree of love and unity or it creates an environment for fractured relationship if we choose to focus on the flaws that we will inevitably see. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's impossible because we're all broken people. Even at our best, we, don't, we, we, have, we have areas where we will disappoint and we will hurt. And it's not letting off. And it's not saying that there's never a time to, to be honest about things and to deal with things and to be real with things and to confront things. But as a whole, we need to guard our close relationships so that we do not allow them to become filled with negativity and focus and lose the blessing of what it was meant to be. That happens all the time. It's sort of like when the honeymoon is over. You know what I'm saying? That's the idea, is that something about familiarity has a way of eroding things, but in its, when it's at its best, it actually brings together at a great depth because in that vulnerability comes the possibility of intimacy, and intimacy truly joins a heart when we are real with one another and honest, and that's exactly how God wants us to be with him. See, now, the thing about it is, it, when I was thinking about the, the, the idea of a critical spirit, because, see, there's very few things that are, that are as damaging as a, a spirit of criticism that prevails. You want to, because that thing is, is, is so filled with negative, when, when, when a house, when a friendship is filled with negativity, it, is, it just strikes like a cancer. I was, I was introduced to a, a book uh, my wife had told me about called Finding Calcutta, it talks about the life of Mother Teresa. One of the things that people don't often realize about Mother Teresa is how much she was criticized. I didn't, you don't think it's, how could you do that? They, people did. Uh, she said one thing about criticism. We'll put her up there. She said, criticism is nothing less than dressed up pride. And it just eats up all the love of God. And again, we're not talking about assessing things, addressing things, dealing with things. What you're talking about is that kind of critical negative spirit that can so easily corrupt an environment because someone is choosing to focus on what's wrong instead of being a contributor making it better. In fact, she tells the story in, this, in one of the chapters that, that, that was entitled Do All Things Without Complaining, and the author talks about how there, was, there were three women who had come from Europe who, who were trained medically, at least one of them was, and uh, how they came in with a full heart to serve and to engage the missionaries that were there. And yet when they got to India, when they got there, uh, Calcutta, they, they were uh, disappointed with the way certain things were being done. And they began to criticize the way the money was being spent. They began to criticize Mother Teresa for not investing in certain types of material that they felt should have been appropriately done for the sake of the children. How could you do this? 
And it says, and the author starts talking about how that attitude, even though it was well-intended, actually ended up becoming so corruptive that it, it began, that anger began to seep in, and all the good that was being done was being lost because of the toxicity of the criticism that was prevailing in that environment. And again, we go back to the quote, that criticism is nothing less than dressed up pride, that it has a way of eating up the love of God. And certainly, if we're going to focus always on what is wrong with things, we're going to miss the blessing, just like the Nazarenes did, of what Jesus was meant. That's how they missed Jesus, because they were full of criticism. Instead of seeing what he had to bring, they lost the great blessing. And that can happen to us in our relationships. It can happen to us with God. And it's one of the things that the Lord wants to keep reminding us of is don't allow, what did it say? It says they were offended of him. Don't live life offended. It's too short. We will be hurt at times. We hurt. May God give us grace. We will at times have reasons to justifiably be angry. But you know what? Be careful about allowing a critical spirit to dominate and obscure the good and the blessing that is all around. Too many of us focus on what is wrong. It's it's, it's a normal tendency. I don't know why we do it. And especially when we get close, the easier it is to somehow feel like we have permission to focus on the negative. But God wants us to be a people who, and here's the last piece here, God wants to teach us to be a people who, and we'll call this our third idea, he wants to be, to be a people who actually are blessers, who understand the value of our key spiritual relationships and, that are part of our lives and affirm those relationships, value those relationships. You know, they're, they're, again, I can't see how anybody could have criticized Jesus. They did. They criticized his pedigree, basically. They wrote him off. The, the fact is there will always be justifications for focusing on flaws, but may God help us to be a gracious people. And I'll tell you where it's going to show up. It's going to show up also in our relationship with the Lord. Because we talked about it these last past weeks, how there are times where God is not always going to do what we were thinking he should do. And in those moments, when we can easily take the Lord for granted and become disappointed in the package he's giving us, instead of thanking him for the blessings that he has given to us, he could give nothing more than what he has given. He's given his own self. He's given us blessings, so many that we don't deserve, people who love us. He, you count your, there used to, the, old, the old ones used to sing a song when I was growing up. Count your blessings, name them one by one. Count your blessings, see what God has done. I mean, they would, it was like, be, let the joy of the Lord accent the positive in your life. Be a grateful person. Live with faith. Live thankful to God. Never make God our enemy. We can get me mad at him every now and then. And I get that. Psalms are full of real frustrated prayers, but God is our friend. He's knowable, and he loves us, and he's come to us, and he has a way for us to go. And I'll take that out one step further and say, not only should we not take the Lord for granted, but let's not take the key people in our lives for granted. Let's not allow familiarity to corrupt the blessing we were meant to give to one another. Instead, let's use it as an opportunity to bless I mean, a lot of times we do take for granted because we're so quick to point out what's wrong, but how many times do we actually take the time to really affirm what a gift you are to me and how, how much my life would be diminished without you in it? 
and what a friend you are to me. Do we affirm those things? Do we affirm how grateful I am that God allowed us to be friends, allowed us to be a husband and a wife, allowed us to be a family, allowed you to be my mom or my dad, I mean, my coworker, who I appreciate greatly. I thank you. I see God in this because I feel the love of God through people most of the time. And maybe we don't, pot, we don't do it enough. We don't do it enough. We wait till it's, someone's, a crisis happens or a bad thing happens. And then we think about what we could have said, should have said, and meant to say. And we don't do it enough. We focus too much on what's wrong and not enough on what's right. We need to focus on the blessing. We need to be a people of blessing. We need, may God give us grace to be this way, to, to, to honor and to bless and to speak the good intention, not just think the good thought. How many good intentions die right there, here? They never get played out. Watch out for familiarity. Bless. You know, the song that we're closing with is called Everything I Own. And one of the parts of this song that has always been kind of special to me is that part in the song towards, it's like the fifth stanza down there. It says, if there's someone you know, you're loving them so, but you're taking them all for granted. You may lose them someday someone takes them away and they don't get to hear the words you long to say. That I would give everything I own. There's this idea of, of Lord, remind, you know, here's the thing. You know, when I first heard this, I thought this song was actually a love song. It's not. It's that it is, but it's not the way I thought it was. It was actually written by the author, the, the one who wrote this song, wrote it about his father. And as we listen to this song, as it closes out our service, I want us to think about the blessings people who've been blessings to us, people who are blessing to us right now, people who spiritually have blessed us, people who have blessed us with their example, uh, people who are just around us and have loved us sometimes when we didn't deserve to be loved and have been faithful and have sacrificed and been kind. Instead of focusing on all the things that are wrong, let's focus on the blessings. So Lord, I just want to take this moment as we prepare to close our time together to ask you, Lord, to keep our heart in a good place. Blessed are the unoffended. Lord, remind us, if we, all, if we want to find what's wrong with things, we'll always have opportunities to do that. There's no question. But, but help us, Lord, as we live this life and seek to follow you, to live light. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. Take my yoke upon you. Let it, it's a light yoke. My burden is easy. My yoke is light. It's a, it's an easy, it's a way of lightness. And I just pray, Lord, that you would keep us from the anxiety, the anger, the offense, the critical spirit that is so toxic at times that it just destroys things. And help us, Lord, to get past things, to forgive, even as we have been forgiven, to move forward, to, to hold on to things, but then let them go, not to just keep clinging to stuff that we need to get past, Lord. Give us grace. And then, not just that, but help us to be the blessers. I pray that you help us, Lord, to go further than not holding a grudge. Help us, Lord, to be a people who bless, people who bring life, who affect generations of people, some of whom aren't even born yet, because we are allowing you to shape and form our lives so that what comes out of it, even in its brokenness and inconsistency, is essentially the goodness of God that draws people irresistibly towards you. So I pray for that blessing. I pray that you'll bless our closing minutes, this closing song, like it were a closing prayer of love for all the gifts you've given. And bless our, bless our time of giving as well, Lord, as we who can honor you together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.